Um, okay, so welcome to the uh, most important panel of today. Um, <laughs> it's about uh, ideology and um, sort of deceptively simple uh, <laughs> um, uh, questions. Did, did ideology matter? And uh, I hope we can pick up some of the sort of fantastic strands of, of discussion from the first panel. Um, and so uh, there are a number uh, of, of questions and contradictions that we are hoping to resolve or start to resolve in, in this panel. And um, um, so the question of ideology uh, is for, for the people in this panel is, is important from a number of different perspectives. Uh, of course, from the perspective of the state and what ideology meant um, to, um, the, to, the, to the state in both Western and Eastern Europe at different times and what it consisted of. But also, um, a theme that's actually very dear to our hearts in, in the project, and it's also how ideology, um, what ideology meant and how it was used and shaped on the ground, um, how it uh, affected the identities of the so-called ordinary citizens of both Eastern and Western Europe. Um, and the, the, the idea for this panel sort of came up as we tried to unpack some of the uh, arguments made by some of the uh, sort of foremost scholars of dissidents, of East European dissidents, who are saying that uh, there was a, a turning point quite early in, in the history of East European socialism where uh, Marxism as an ideology completely lost its credibility and sort of uh, remained as a sort of an empty shell for, for most of the uh, East European populations. And um, so, um, so the question of periodization here um, uh, will be very important, but also just the very tenet of this, of, of this argument. And also, what we are uh, hoping also to address in this panel is this binary between Eastern and Western Europe. The imaginations of Eastern Europe is sort of thoroughly pervaded and regimented by this uh, uh, kind of unified, supposedly, uh, total ideology, and then the image of Western Europe in which um, ideology is either non-existent or there is no dominant ideology, or ideology doesn't pervade the, sort of every um, aspect of, of people's private lives. Anyway, so um, we're starting with a foremost scholar of Eastern Europe, Professor Anita Pajmanska from the London School of Economics, um, who is actually working on uh, history of the Second World War, the Cold War, um, Polish Civil War, and Eastern Europe in general. So, Thank you. Um, when looking at ideology, the thing that always uh, seems to affect uh, the debate is the fact that uh, communist ideology nowadays is perceived or looked at as a sort of failed project. So what we have is a failed project syndrome. The starting point <laughs> is trying to look at it. Why did it fail? Whether it failed? Could it have failed? Might it not have failed? Mm -hmm. This type of stuff. Um, and also, it becomes, of course, part of contemporary politics. As you can imagine, for a Polish person, this is a very painful <laughs> moment, and we won't, I won't dwell on that one. That's, we all have personal tragedies. But what we have is, what we have is uh, this, this um, question of how is it perceived now? And if we are going to hand over to younger scholars the... the need to study ideology and to understand what drove on uh, the transformation and policies in Eastern Europe, then we are actually up against it because we're not only are present governments committed to denying that they were actually fully, uh, the people in each of these countries were fully active in uh, the building of that new project, on in, in not just in terms of actual engagement, but actually thinking through what was the purpose. So ideology was extremely important, but it's not something that uh, is uh, some. It's not something that contemporary governments want to speak about, and there is a denial. There is a sort of presentation of ideology as something that 
Soviet agents were responsible for, or people who were so Soviet agents. Um, and also, of course, if I look at the people from the left, the radical left tended also to look at what was happening in Eastern Europe through the failed project syndrome. In other words, that there would have been a better uh, communist system were it not for, and then there are the search for this, uh, for. Um, uh, distortions. Now, for me, what was so interesting, I was brought up in Poland um, until I was 19, and the issue of ideology, I for the first time noticed ideology when I came to the West. It was not that I saw ideology in Poland, because the transformative project, the youth projects, educational projects, building projects, they were the norm. I simply accepted this as something that was part of the great post-war reconstruction. When I came to Britain, I was suddenly told that I was quite clearly brainwashed. I was quite <laughs> clearly, in many ways, my thinking had been distorted by my background, and I was, I was the one that had a problem. What was so interesting was I came to Britain at exactly the time when in Britain uh, or the UK, what confronted the security services was Irish terrorism. And I was fascinated, absolutely fascinated by the denial that there was such a thing as Irish terrorism. They were criminals, of course. There was no debate of ideology. So I was suddenly thinking, who's the one who's got a problem in terms of the thinking here? And that has always led me to see that we have a problem in, look, in finding ideology. In finding ideology, we literally have to vault over a certain barrier. And we are searching for what it is there. I, in fact, in the communist uh, period, do see ideology. I see ideology as defining the transformation that was taking place there. I am not suggesting it was popular. I'm not suggested, suggesting that it was something that the community was involved in. Mm. Nor am I suggesting that it was successful. But I nevertheless see that there were stages that, uh, that ideology was extremely important. 1945, we see communist thinking through, and also the radical, young, progressive thinking people distancing themselves from the pre-war and wartime period and thinking about the way forward. 48, another transformation period. 56, there we have a reopening of debate. 68, it's not just anti-Semitism, but we also have actually <coughs> the question of what did we do to the youth? What are the youth? Mm -hmm. What responsibility they have? And of course, Czechoslovakia, the great debate. 1971. Again, Gerek is suddenly coming on, up with a different form of relationship between people and state. You don't have to be a communist, but we've got the unspoken contract. It is ideological. It's continuously a debate on how the state coexists with its people. <coughs> so to me, <laughs> the question is here, not whether ideology existed, but how ideology underwent a process of transformation, both in terms of its aims, as well as how it functioned, how it related to people around it. And of course, the critical question for us as historians is how we look back at it. It is an ongoing project. Thank you very much. Um, so we're turning over to uh, Diana Gergescu from uh, CIS, who is working on the history of um, socialist Romania in Eastern Europe, sure. and especially history of uh, children and youth. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So I would like to start indeed with a perception of ideology because I'm working on a period on late socialism that of course is not just perceived as, as having sort of omnipresent ideology but also being suffering from this kind of political apathy, political indifference, if not cynicism in relation to mm -hmm. ideology. And so I would suggest that looking at this period, even in Ceausescu's Romania, yeah, in what is now termed late socialism, even mature socialism or post-Stalinism, um, actually, look, so looking at this period through the perspective of children and youth and various areas in society, so that of education and pedagogy, actually kind of points to a very differentiated response to ideology. Yeah, so maybe looking at it from the perspective of intellectuals and cultural ideological producers does, does show a certain uh, political uh, apathy. But from the perspective of, of education and pedagogy, there is a sense in which uh, teachers and parents and even children who are engaged in this process, even in late socialism, responded quite enthusiastically to a number of, of, of kind of principles of socialist pedagogy, in part because by late socialism, these were very uh, nicely interwoven with nationalist principles. So in part, what we, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of talk about an uncontaminated Marxist-Leninist ideology. Already by late socialism, there are a, a set of tensions in late socialist ideology, either inherent in Marxism-Leninism or kind of emerging out of this tension between national principles and Marxist principles, or even this tension between the totalitarian intentions of the pedagogues and the actual implementations in schools and kindergartens across the country. So in, in some sense, I see late socialist ideology, because we were talking a little bit about periodization as well, as suffering from all these tensions that as historians we probably need to capture. And uh, another difference that I see looking at ideology from the perspective of youth and children um, is I, I don't look at ideology as much as a system of ideas, yeah, as a sort of corpus of texts that's monolithic and that it has an overarching, if not obsessive, idea. Mm -hmm. Um, but I look at ideology in action. Yeah, I look at how ideology is practiced and performed on an everyday basis. And that's in part because the pedagogy of socialist citizenship, the way of, of raising a socialist citizen was by, by doing, was what I call manifest activism. That a child had to become a socialist citizen by doing patriotic deeds or by expressing patriotic emotions. But this had to be manifest, this had to be externalized. So there was, it was an ideology of action, if you want. So I'm, look, I'm looking at ideology in action. And I find uh, not only a sort of, in some areas, uh, enthusiastic responses, but I also find that ideology was in many ways constraining, but also enabling. So it was productive of, of a certain, certain kind of socialist subjectivity, yeah, that uh, for example, um, going on summer expeditions in the Carpathian Mountains in the 70s and 80s as a teenager and pre pe playing these roles of historians or ethnographers of the nation kind of gave certain young people a sense of self-empowerment, a sense of self-worth. Mm -hmm. So there is this uh, tenet of individualization in socialist pedagogy just as there is the tenet of totalization of, of integrating young people in the collective. Um, yes, so, and I would conclude just with a few notes on the, the sort of east-west um, comparison of ideology. Um, 
it seems to me that, for example, in the late 60s and early 1970s, when Romania opens to the West, especially in the realm of pedagogy, what happens is that socialist pedagogues and educators who become now exposed to ideas from the West tend to find that Westerners come to certain pedagogical principles actually quite late in the process. So there was a big buzz uh, at the time of this opening around the idea of experiential learning and learning by doing. And of course, socialist pedagogues as well, we had always been doing this, yeah, learning through work, learning by, through practice. This was central to, to <coughs> communist ideology. So in some sense, they, they, they kind of welcome this opening and tend to see in the West things that they had already practiced for a while, at least in children's and, and youth education. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, we're moving over to the Soviet field now, um, and um, uh, we're lucky to have uh, Polly Jones from the University of Oxford, who is um, actually a specialist in Russian literature and has been looking at biographies of revolutionaries in late socialism. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I do come at these questions uh, as a literary scholar, as Anna said, mm -hmm. and um, ideology interests me centrally, um, first in the sense of, sort of ideological pressures on texts, which obviously can be construed very widely, and on authors, um, both at the individual and community level, and um, I'm also interested in how ideology is sort of thought through and potentially complicated in texts and in their reception. Um, so I want to make three points, um, not all of which I may have time to go into in detail, so I'll, I'll sort of preview them now. The first is that um, ideology matters tremendously, and I, I think it's important to bring it back in, and as our first two speakers said, particularly into late socialism, where there is this still commonplace idea that it becomes ossified, performative, um, replicated ad infinitum. Secondly, um, because ideology continues to matter, I think, right the way through um, the late socialist period, there is an ongoing concern, not always put into practice, but at least there is an ongoing pressure um, to innovate um, in terms of ideological communication and propaganda. Um, and thirdly, um, if we then look at the producers of this kind of ideological literature broadly construed and at the audience, I think we do need to deconstruct this binary which was mentioned in the panel description um, between sort of cynical in-system intellectuals and uh, sort of cynical uh, in-system sort of readers of Soviet literature on the one hand and on the other this idea of sort of the dissidence is completely separate from that. Um, in fact, um, the, and, and, and therefore, um, we need, I think, to look at other ways in which people engage with ideology through um, official Soviet culture. Um, so to come back to my first point then, ideology never ceasing to matter to the Soviet regime, that might seem an obvious point to make, um, but in fact it is still a commonplace that ideology, as I said, became ossified in late socialism and had become sort of totally stagnant by the time Gorbachev came to power. Um, and in the last decade or so, um, as I'm sure many of you know, there's been this new wave of archivally-based studies of the Khrushchev era, which have brought ideology back into the so-called thaw, and seen um, the Khrushchev period as a kind of, um, not so much a relaxation of ideology, as a kind of reaffirmation of Leninist principles, and indeed of a utopian vision of the socialist future. But when we look at the historiography of the Brezhnev era, which is sort of ballooning massively at the moment, um, and in particular maybe Alexei Yurchak's very influential book, um, Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More, we still find this idea that ideology had become sort of routinized. And in fact, Yurchak claims that um, ideological formulae were in the end simply sort of collated from previous texts, literally kind of stuck in um, and ritually pronounced ad, ad infinitum. And he links this to what he calls a performative shift that kind of hollows out ideology from within. Uh, my research, um, which is looking at sort of ideological publishing, political publishing um, of late socialism, um, has found something different. 
Um, throughout the 60s and 70s, certainly, the party um, is urgently concerned with remobilizing and transforming citizens by making them engage with ideology more profoundly and effectively. Um, the authorities are well aware, in other words, of the problem that people are starting to look at ideology um, sort of, and, and Soviet culture more broadly as something stagnant and routinized. And as such, um, they, what results actually are ongoing attempts and pressure to try and recapture and remold the Soviet population rather than just simply give them the same old forms of indoctrination. Um, and in particular, I think we can see this um, in the very extensive attention to the Soviet personality. And I know that um, Anatoly is going to talk about this as well. Um, the idea of sort of targeting propaganda at the um, individual. And I think precisely because competition with the West was so intense, especially after the wake, uh, in the wake of the Prague Spring, it was crucial to pay more attention um, to Sovietizing the population. So there's a lot of psychological and sociological research in the 60s and 70s into the place of the individual in Soviet society and uh, therefore um, new ways of sort of making the Soviet man. Um, and party congresses of the Brezhnev era also talk about this, and it's not simply performative, as I'll come on to in a minute. Um, and in particular, I argue that what emerges out of this consistent pressure to innovate um, in forms of ideological communication is the rise of biography as a key propaganda genre of, of the period. Um, this brings me to my second point, which is I think there's not a consistent connection between what we think of as periods of sort of ideological intensification or intense competition with the West on the one hand, so particularly that launched after 1968 uh, in the Soviet Union, and, and very dogmatic approaches to ideology and propaganda. And it's often assumed that the two must go hand in hand when there's more sort of ideological pressure. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, there's, um, there's also going to be more dogmatic forms of um, ideology. But actually, if we look uh, in different places, in different projects, we find again this sort of pressure to make propaganda more individually focused, a great concern with uh, innovation and popular appeal, precisely because the ideological stakes are so high. Um, to bring this into focus a little bit more, um, I'm currently researching, sort of doing a micro-study of the main Soviet political publisher called Politizdat, and within that publisher, although it had been extremely conservative under Stalinism, we find this constant top-down pressure from the party to innovate, and interestingly, it's not, again, it's not just performative, it actually produces a great deal of innovation within the publisher, and in particular, um, the production of a very large biographical series, which runs from 1968 to 1990, and it involves a very large number of famous uh, post-Stalinist writers, many of which are actually very close to the distant movement, and they're brought in precisely for pragmatic reasons to actually sort of uh, revitalise the form of political propaganda. And if I may just finally, just very briefly summarise my final point relating to that, which is this question of... Um, dissidence and disillusionment, when that sets in, does that set in amongst the population, and in particular amongst the Soviet intelligentsia. Um, and uh, I think what this collaboration, this literary collaboration with this political publisher instead highlights is actually there's the development of more complex attitudes to ideology and more complex subjectivities, which are fostered by this sort of complex uh, imperatives of ideological policy. So the series isn't simply sort of dissidence, sort of smuggled in dissidence, as it's often been um, interpreted. But rather, um, the authors, because the brief of the series is to kind of explore revolutionaries' hearts and minds and therefore to win back the population's hearts and minds, the authors are allowed to probe ideology in a much more sort of profound way and they complicate it and critique it. And I think this does reflect a shift in attitudes to ideology, but it's not a performative shift of the kind that your chat talks about. I think it's a deeper engagement with Soviet um, ideas and models of selfhood rather than just performance of its ritualised form. And I think... 
ultimately this indicates the way that in which late, late Soviet culture can um, continue to engage with ideology um, in new, albeit often unexpected ways, and therefore that we need to kind of deconstruct the notion of stagnation setting in. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and we are now moving um, to um, Dina Feinberg, who's uh, coming from the University of Amsterdam, um, is looking at um, cultural representations of the Cold War in both Eastern and Western media, right? Um, so foreign correspondence. Foreign correspondence. Okay. Um, so when I read the brief for this panel, the the notion that the East was ideological and the West somehow not was really felt very close to my heart because it's very, very manifest in the ways that um, Western and Eastern media and propaganda and the press were studied and can still to this day, in a sense, discussed. And so when I'm uh, kind of the, the setting point of my own study of Soviet and American journalists who crossed the Iron Curtain to report on the other is that yeah, surely these guys were saying the truth, Americans, and the Soviets were lying and kind of concealing the advantages of Western way of life. And my own research kind of engages first and foremost with that uh, particular assumption. Um, and in my own study, it emerges that the main difference was not if one side was ideological and the other not, it's how ideology actually worked um, in the press how it um, manifests itself in the personalities of these people, in the institutions that they were part of, and of course, in the eventual reporting that the Soviets produced about Americans, American produced about the Soviets, essentially representations of the Cold War uh, rival. Um, <coughs> and if we look at the how of ideological manifestation, then we can see very interesting differences, which are quite obvious, but also very interesting similarities that I was surprised to discover um, and I think kind of worth thinking about. So, for example, both sets of international reporting um, were premised on a certain form of comparative writing and reading that invited audiences to construct <coughs> their accounts about the Cold War adversary with their own country. However, the country implied in this comparison was not the actual reality in which they lived, but, some, but the very idealized notion um, of a country that delivered the socialist utopia or the American dream. So, for example, when American journalists are complaining about um, the paucity of uh, choice in Soviet shops, uh, they kind of mention in the same breath that uh, this is nowhere like the experience of the American housewives who can just dash off, buy whatever they want, and come back. Uh, similarly, when Soviet journalists are writing about, you know, the conditions in American. Uh, kind of the ghettos uh, where working class and racial minorities live, again, this glo glosses over uh, the dire state in which many Soviet workers were living at the very same time. Um, previously, such bias, we can say, or I call it subjective writing, was attributed solely to the Soviet journalism and kind of explained away as uh, fear or censorship or whatnot. But looking, if we look closely both at American and Soviet writing, we can see that both, kind of both media projects were very, very actively um, engaging with and contributing to the production of these ideas of the Cold War. Um, and even the private, kind of, uh, the private correspondence, the private writings of these people uh, on both sides uh, show that there's a lot of personal commitment, uh, a lot of personal thinking about this, and that um, the ideology really structures how they think about themselves, how they think about the others, and these kind of Cold War postulates are 
informing the way of uh, identity, the way they interpret their experiences overseas, um, and so on. And in that sense, journalists, and I think um, even more broader people who engaged in mass media or people who engaged in propaganda, however defined, were not just the producers of ideology, but also its products. And there is this kind of constant process of uh, production, elaboration, reinvention, and so on. Um, and overall, I'd like to suggest uh, kind of building on this, but also so happy to hear kind of the other contributions on this panel, that perhaps it's time we thought differently about our definition of Cold War ideology. Um, and it has already been done, um, again, as excellent scholars beside me show, uh, that not think about it as kind of a set of uh, canons or dogmas that people just kind of bring and parade uh, uh, or impose, but as something that is uh, very active and adaptive, something that is very much personalized, that is really, that is really meaningful by the way it operates, by the way it structures experiences, uh, something that is constantly invented and reinvented um, and helps individuals make sense of themselves and of the world of the Cold War. And that's perhaps how ideology endured and kind of remained relevant, I believe, to the very end. Beautiful. <laughs> Five um, and uh, our final participant is Anatoly Pinsky from the European University of St. Petersburg, who works in um, the sort of construction of Soviet subjectivity and late socialism. Mm -hmm. All right, thanks. So I wanted to, I wanted to start by doing a very quick, close reading of the panel description. So, the, so, so <laughs> sorry, but I'm, I'm going to arrive at the point that I think that you wanted us all to arrive at. So the first thing that I wanted to do was remove the opposition in the first sentence. That is between the, quote, supposed waning significance of ideology in the West and the overly rigid ideological regimentation of the East. And this is, a, this is of course, because the very notion to cite the next sentence that the Western private self was shielded from ideological influences is an ideological statement since the private self is an ideological construct. <laughs> um, moreover, the notion that, quote, there was no dominant political ideology in the West is a statement informed, of course, by an ideology. And I was, in preparing for this panel, I was reading to figure out, you know, I know how this happened in terms of the media, but evidently American sociologists are very much to blame for this, this, <laughs> this idea. Um, as for the East, at least as regards the Soviet Union, there are few scholars who would argue, to cite the panel description again, that, quote, ideology, per ideology permeated every aspect of private and public lives, even Oleg, uh, the much-cited Oleg Harkordin, um, who is my boss, incidentally. <laughs> uh, my, my reading of the panel description is an obvious push for us to accept a different and wider definition of ideology. That is a definition not limited to narrow normative ideas about politics, society, and economics. My wider definition of ideology is the following. Those discourses and practices that tell a large number of human beings how to be, or if you like, that subjectivize, with the goal of shaping the social and the political. Discourses and practices tell us how to be, to jump to a very micro level, even in terms of how we structure sentences. If we accept this definition, it's very easy to see how ideology permeated West and East. Now let me take my remaining three minutes to talk about the East, which I, which I know more about. In my work on Soviet uh, writers, um, and I work on subjectivity, um, my main subjects are Soviet writers and literary critics, one of my main arguments, it can be said, um, aims to elucidate the nature, nature of post-Stalin ideology. The argument is in part the following that a turn toward individuality in the 1950s and 1960s is in fact in continuity with Stalin-era ideology. 
This is because Stalinism included a romanticist discourse, which, which a number of other scholars have, have, have said as well. For my purposes, this romanticist discourse refers in, in part to, to a discourse of inwardness and one of probing of the inner and natural self. Um, in addition, I approach romanticism in the tradition of Jerome McGann as an ideology. And here McGann uses the term ideology as Marx used it, not in the sense that I'm proposing to use it here, which I hope doesn't, doesn't create confusion. In McGann's view, romantic works as opposed to romantic ideology or the ideas that partisans have historically termed romantic describe a desire for reconciliation between subject and object, but ultimately capture contradiction and fragmentation. In, inv in invoking the Romanticism within Stalinism, I gesture to the shared intellectual traditions of the West and Russia. And here, to turn to the questions that were sent to panelists, um, in addition to the panel description, a, pos a possible comparative perspective emerges. An important part of my argument is that this Romanticism endured and in fact deepened and, and evolved after Stalin. To return to the panel description, in particular the notion of contradiction, that is, the rejection, quote, the rejection of Marxism in Eastern Europe after 1968 existed alongside, quote, the idea that Marxism was never generally adopted except by a small number of the brainwashed. And this, incidentally, is a contradiction that, that, uh, that I, had, I had noticed um, when doing my dissertation research, and I've actually never seen it stated before, so I was, felt like I had a like-minded a like um, like, like uh, person. Um, so many people in the East, of course, rejected Marxism, but at least in the Soviet Union, many did not, even after 1968, Gorbachev being the primary example. But even among those who, quote, rejected Marxism, Marxism remained in, in less recognizable or what we might call microforms. And an example of such, an, an example of such a microform would be an enduring romanticism inflected by Soviet Marxism. And here, here, just incidentally, I'm sort of jumping ahead. All my subjects, I sort of stop in the mid-1960s, are, are very much wed to a, to, to, to a Marxism expressly. So also, if we, if we accept that Soviet Marxism including, included romanticism in the 1930s, and we find widely articulated romanticist discourse in this decade, we can make the argument that Marxism, or at least a portion thereof, was accepted by a larger group of people. So, and, um, and then before closing, I just wanted to propose a second part to this definition of Soviet Marxism or Soviet ideology. I'm now using Soviet Marxism kind of interchangeably with Soviet ideology. Um, and it's really a question. And that is, um, what if Soviet Marxism is defined as a particular kind of language? And I don't have time to talk about this, to talk about this but maybe I can return to it during, during the discussion. And I don't mean, um, and I'll explain why, um, speaking Bolshevik, um, Stephen Kotkin's <laughs> concept. I don't, I don't mean to criticize that, that, that concept, but, but that's not what I mean. Um, so in sum, um, as should be clear, what I'm arguing for is a more expansive, but I hope still useful definition of ideology. And I'm also, in a sense, putting, putting forward two general questions for discussion. The first being, what is the most profitable definition of ideology we as students of the Cold War can use? And second, given whatever definition we accept, what are some intellectually exciting ways that we can explore it? Thanks. Thank you very much. And thank you to all. <laughs> absolutely must end by 1.15. Um, um, we should just open it up to your questions. So just really one thing I want to quickly uh, say um, is that um, something that I find frustrating in my own research is this sort of division between the, the Soviet field, uh, the Soviet historiography that's actually dealing with these questions, and then in East European, right, or East Central European and Balkan field, that it's actually, that don't seem to be 
uh, there doesn't seem to be much crossing over and some of the sort of conceptual methodological machinery that, that is being used in the Soviet field that doesn't necessarily cross over to East Germany. And so that's something that we can actually pick up maybe later in the discussion. But we have Jessica, Dora, Iris. Just a very quick uh, comment, really. Uh, I, I take your, your close reading of the description uh, as a, it's a fair point, but it's never a good idea to put very straw men together in the, in the same sentence, I put, fair enough. But I would just like to say it sounds as though you kind of essentially agree on all this. It is fundamentally true, though, that we failed to get a Western European historian to join this panel, right? And I sent out dozens of invitations and received responses that this is not particularly relevant, it's not something they engage with. So I would like to say that this, this, this kind of unanimity is, is lovely to hear, but it's actually not entirely as true of the, the, the kind of the state of the field. So perhaps it's something that we can discuss as well, to what extent we can think comparatively and... and uh, a big, sorry, let's not depress ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a quick question. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had two questions. One um, is that several of you um, uh, talked about the experience of ideology and, and looking at it and how it actually is played out, how it is performed or invented. And uh, I wanted to ask you of, um, how does this all change if you take it into account? Um, the margins or situations where it doesn't, uh, it, that, that don't conform to anything that's expected. For instance, in education, what about special needs education or, or, or disability? Um, what, what happens then with ideology and how does that uh, play into it? Um, and, uh, but, but there could be other ways, like, like uh, how does uh, ideology come out, uh, play into to, to the Roma population, for instance? Or, or so on. Um, and the, the other one is a more general one, is um, because it comes from my own frustration. I have no 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 answer to this. Um, I feel like working on Cold War history is a bit like living with a toddler. You know, one day it's like <laughs> something super important. The next day, like they, they don't even remember that. And it's all my God, it's all about ideology. And you know, I'm finally convinced that okay, ideology is crucial here. And then the next day I sit down, same people, next day, ideology, what ideology? It doesn't it doesn't come come up. Things happen that you would expect to play out completely differently because of ideology. And and it's just non existent. Nobody talks about it as if as if there was, was no Cold War and that's not just the same, but that's a different um, thing. So I, I was I was wondering what in what is it is it fields in which I, in certain situations where ideology is is, is important or pervasive or uh, in certain fields of education or is it is it does, is it does it matter of, of what the specific goal of, of some kind of action is or or a specific problem or what what how does the importance of ideology change and then we we didn't even go into like what kind of ideology and the competing ideologies of of socialism versus you know anything else of, of, of scientific thought yeah, I, I guess I have two questions, or you know, questions. Uh, one is several of you, of course, hinted at that ideology is nothing God-given, but it's uh, it's constructed, and ideology is always something that others have, and um, and that's you know I come from Germany, and I just real we we're going through a phase where we realize it's so hard to define what an ideology is because we have people especially a rising right wing saying that this ideology of multiculturalism is nonsense and we should give it up 
and we have people from Syria saying this, this ideology of women being the same as men is nonsense, we should give it up. And we have people, other people saying this ideology of women being different from men is, okay, you get the point. So the question is, how do you deal with that? I mean, what, because ideology, I would argue, is basically an idea of how the world is and or how it should be. So what you call ideology or what you call human rights or what you call justice mm -hmm. depends on your point of view. And of course, things like human rights and justice are important. I, you know, you can't just say everything is subjective, but then some things are just subjective. So I have no solution. So what is your solution on that? Um, <laughs> and then secondly, on top of that, um, I, I, I would think that probably ideology is no problem and not even noticed if everybody agrees to it. So if everybody agrees to it, probably it's no ideology. But the, the, the problem arises when some people disagree. So I wonder if maybe a more fruitful approach is not to look at how different, and I would just call it worldviews, are imposed or how they are disciplined. What happens if people disagree? Um, OK, this is the question. OK, so let's just uh, perhaps take these uh many questions <laughs> and um, um, yeah, I, I can make a couple of points I mean not not addressing all of them but um, I mean I think as far I think it was a question over there so I don't know your name sorry um, but uh, I think certainly as far as sort of Soviet historiography is concerned I think and I don't know if Anatoly would agree with me or not as somebody who works more closely with this um, with this literature but I think what we've seen happen is the sort of um, importation if you like of um, very interesting work from um, on Stalinist subjectivity, and it's sort of moving gradually further and further forward in time, so that you know that we are sort of starting to bring back um, ideas that you know that, that both Dina and Anatoly talked about, of um, you know how how ideology or whatever you want to call it sort of shapes people's subjectivity, and is there a distinctive Soviet subjectivity that we can trace all the way through, not just in the Stalinist period when perhaps we get closest to. Um, the situation that, that Iris was talking about, where there is this kind of more totalizing kind of attempt and very visible ideology as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's precisely most visible, I think, when everybody is supposed to agree, um, in a sense. Um, so I think I think that's one of the things um, that's sort of happening. Uh, the other thing that I've, I've sort of noticed when, when going through the literature on late socialism myself is that for a long time there was exactly um, a focus only on the margins, in fact, as the only interesting spaces, that the ones that were most free of ideological influence, and indeed often claimed to be sort of totally free of it. Um, and we still see that today, I think, in this idea that somehow there were kind of niches and oases of um, freedom or of whatever you, I mean, again, freedom is a very problematic term, but, but often this, I, I've noticed in, um, in moving into the, 60, the late 60s and 70s, this, this focus on um, spaces that are somehow apart um, and what interests me in my own work is that actually I think in, in some ways um, the publisher that I'm looking at became weirdly a niche even though it was completely central to the sort of Soviet ideological apparatus but that the writers who wrote within it somehow felt that they had created a niche and in, in, in interviews with the writers and the editors that's exactly how they describe it. Um, and one other thing if I may, as, as far as, um, I can't now remember which point this is uh, in relation to, sorry, which question, but um, very interesting work, I think, being done on, on dissidents now and, and whether um, John Bolton's work on, on Czech dissidents, I think, is very interesting because it, it shows that, I think, that on the one hand, he deconstructs the idea that there was a kind of dissident ideology, if you like, 
Um, but on the other hand, he, he does show that there was something distinctive about it, and it was a way of life, a kind of total way of being, albeit one that was still sort of evolving and contested and debated almost right up until um, the socialist collapse there. But I think that's, that's another interesting, um, I suppose, direction um, in studies of dissidence, that in a way we seem to be bringing back in something like a kind of ideological approach or subjectivity-based approach um, to, to looking at the other side, if you like, of the, of the story. The question you said, asked was how do we deal with it, which was a nice and open question. answer is very simple. I'm a historian. I don't deal with it. I try to understand it. You know, if I were a politician, then I'd have to deal with it. But as a historian, it is my duty to try to break this down and understand where that transformative energy is coming from. You have to deal with it when you're defining your subject. Well, the, that's what I've just defined it. I see it as a transformative energy. There's something there that is driving on a process of transformation. Ask myself in 45, it's most probably construction. When I look later down the line, I can see modeling. I can start seeing that transformation of the coal mining industry, integration of Siberian coal, is affected by criteria which are not purely economical. And there starts being a debate on the way in which removal of certain categories of people from mining, prisoners of war, in cooperation other categories of people, is actually going to have two parallel results, which is one, higher in productivity, two, transformation of society. And that's where I start seeing that there is more than just economic debates. And this is, as I, in my thinking, is that must be ideology because it is beyond the assessment of productivity. Now, I am absolutely certain other people will see different interpretations, but as a historian, this is my approach. And also, just to touch up on some of the things that have cropped up here, which is that we do not see ideology as something that is fixed. We also see ideology adapting to problems. And that was struck me very much when I saw an account of uh, discussions that took place in Poland when um, the Cubans started uh, 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 being in close contact with the Poles. Fidel Castro came to Poland with Raul Castro and a whole big team and behaved absolutely terribly while they were there. But nevertheless, one of the in, in, very important debate was on economic matters. And the Polish Central Committee members berated the Cubans for imposing ideology into agriculture. They said, this is going to lead to the collapse of production. And you, as a government, are responsible for feeding your people. Believe me, you will be in a mess. And they were in a mess. And what was so interesting is that the Poles, though they were members of the Central Committee, so they were members of highest echelons of the Communist Party, literally told Fidel Castro that ideology should not play a role in food production. And I liked seeing that one, because what I was reading was a real debate. It was a debate between pragmatism and what transformation they had in mind. And they were talking to comrades who didn't see it in the same way. As a historian, I, I really felt I was given an opportunity to try to dissect, to understand. It was very rich. I think this points to 
to something that might explain why we who study the East Soviet socialist countries have a topic in ideology, whereas Western hist or historians of the West don't think they do. And that is because socialist and Soviet ideology identified itself as ideology, because yeah. kind of unabashedly. Yeah, we read, we have propaganda sections of the mm -hmm. Communist Party that are now archived and that we read, so there, there, there were propagandists out there. And so there was something about the recognition and the use in, in the regime of the, of the term ideology and of ideology and the perception of ideology that kind of carries on, I think, a little bit into our research. I mean, then there's been this period. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, liberalism identified itself as human nature, right? And yeah. <laughs> so that, is, that seems to be, and so it's imperceptible. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah the, question, the question about, um, well, I have two points, and one was in response to the question that um, ideolo or ideology doesn't really come up, or that there are fields where ideology um, may be more important. And, and here, I, I think it would be interesting to think about the extent to which um, Again, I think it's important how, how we're defining ideology, but the extent but the extent to which particular forms lend themselves to an obvious um, ideological expression, say in my in, in my case to um, to state the case too strongly, praise of Stalin. You know why why are you going to find praise of Stalin in a personal correspondence between two between a husband a husband and wife? Um, are there, are you going to find, so with, this is actually something that I'm thinking about right now because I've been, I've been reading um, a personal correspondence, uh, a massive personal correspondence between two very ideological figures from the late 1940s, early 1950s, a writer and his wife who was a literary critic. And, um, and they, uh, and you find all sorts of, you find all sorts of kind of ideological, all sorts of ideological rhetoric, but there's very little on Stalin. And this is, of course, the, the period during which um, the Stalin cult is, is, during during one of its boom, boom periods, and and um, and it's not in there. And then I'm I'm reading Jan Plomper's book on um, on the Stalin cult, and one of the arguments in, in his, his excellent book is that the Stalin cult is primarily a visual um, is primarily a, a visual mode of representation. So if it's a and here, I mean, this might sound a little bit crazy, but if it's a visual mode of representation, to what extent is it going to get into um, a, 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 a Letters, person, personal letters. Is there is there a model in the culture where um, that would that that would let people know that they should be writing about Stalin? Incidentally, in this correspondence, Stalin does come up mm -hmm. once. Mm -hmm. this, it starts in forty nine to fifty two, and it's went and, and it ends in where I've stopped in fifty three. It keeps going, and I just haven't gotten to that part. And it's when and it's very brief. It's when the his his intervention on linguistics comes up, and the husband writes to his wife, "Have you read this? This is genius." And then, and, and, and that's it. But, but the larger point here is, are there particular, you know, what, what do particular forms lend themselves to, given how those forms are defined um, in, in, in the culture? And then, and then the second, and then the, just quickly the second point, in the close reading, the close reading of the panel description, I didn't mean it to be, although maybe the tone for some reason came out this way, I didn't mean it to be a, crit, crit, a crit, criticism of the panel description. I read my crit, criticism of the, or my close reading I saw my close reading of the panel description as, in a sense, um, if a, a critique maybe of those Western Europeanists who, who hold those assumptions. But and I read it as, and I and and as the direction I went in, I read panel description as a push to go in that direction. We're all on the same page. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just want to say that I'm very sympathetic as kind of a person whose research is one leg always in American and U.S. history, and so I've talked not just to Europeans and Cold Wars, but also to U.S. historians. I find it very, um, I find myself like queasy to use the term ideology when, when I talk to them about my work. Um, I know kind of that I shouldn't, but sometimes I'm afraid to be offensive. Like, am I offending you that I'm saying that liberalism is an ideology, that liberal capitalism is an ideology? Um, and I get, and, and some of the responses are sympathetic, but then once you say the, the ideology word, oh, surely not. I mean, this is not, how could that be ideology? And so I'm, it's again speaks perhaps to the better connection between the fields of whether some, uh, some fields find this as a problem that they need to engage with or not, like Jessica explained. Thank you. Uh, so we have a long list of questions. Um, let's start with uh, Piers, Elidor, and Lucas. Okay. Uh, yes, there, there's other um, I, I suppose my question has partly been dealt with, but it was a response partly to Jessica's sort of uh, appeal to the absent Western Europeanists. As a Western Europeanist, <laughs> I felt like I had to say, to say something of this. And, and, and I think the problem, in the sense, has already been touched upon. The problem is, is Western European. Don't, historians don't use ideology as a category of analysis. Um, if you ask for Western European people to talk about politics or possibly political ideas or um, political movements or something, you would have got a response. But as soon as you use ideology as a phrase, it's not something that immediately kind of rings mm -hmm. bells in the way that it clearly does. Do you think does. that's problematic? Or not? I, I think it is problematic. It creates a basic asymmetry. <laughs> I, I suppose my question leading off from this sort of assumption is what does it say about the nature yeah. of the two systems mm -hmm. that it sounds as if in the <coughs> in the, the Soviets and the Eastern European context, ideology was a meaningful term, even for those involved in, this, in the system. Mm -hmm. Whereas for most of those in the West, there was an assumption that ideology was something else that, some, that others had and you didn't. Mm -hmm. And that strikes me as, so we can make that observation, but we then have to go down to the level below and say, why is that state of affairs? Uh, why does that exist? Um, Elidor? Um, they, some of the speakers uh, mentioned the, the, the Communist Party, which I was very glad to hear about, because um, <laughs> the, there are one-party states in existence and um, I wonder to what extent does that make a difference in, in, in this history? The fact that, and, and, and I very much appreciated Diana's point about there, there are entire departments staffed with people who are agitprof. That's what they do, that's what they pay, that's what they wake up in the morning doing. And, and so how much of the institutional history sort of gets reinserted into our cultural intellectual approaches to the issue? And then very briefly, a second point, on the issue of dissidence, it strikes me that our case studies about dissidence and the communism often comes from the countries that allowed it. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't tend to sort of go to North Korea or Albania <laughs> to study dissidence. Uh, I don't know what to make of that conceptually, but it, but it does sort of. Unfortunately, it's not helpful for me. I have to go there, but the, the, <laughs> conceptually, it's always struck me what, what, what that means. Yeah, it's a question which uh, actually Anita mentioned sort of went into that direction. I remember when I interviewed an architect who's, who was the one of the first to, uh, to arrive to Accra in 1961, a Polish architect, he said, when we were received in the embassy, the official who received us told us, quote, we don't need people for ideology, we need people who can get things done. And 
so I was wondering to what extent, you know, this, this category of sort of non-ideology, the other of ideology, is a part of, this, of, the, of the actual discourse of the state itself, right? And so not as dissidents or not like, you know, somebody outside of the Iron Curtain, but like within the system. To, and, and so in other words, pragmatism, yes, but what does it exactly mean if this pragmatism is opposed to ideology, right? Mm -hmm. So two points, to, re to respond to uh, Pierce's point that Western Europeans don't use ideology as a category of analysis and they use things like political, political thought. I mean, I think that, that's a really important observation and it makes um, doing, if you're interested in it, it makes doing a kind of comparative or transnational intellectual historical work very difficult. Um, it's not by any means impossible, but there's a, there's a barrier to entry here where, I mean, I'm, I'm interested, for instance, I'm interested in romanticism. I'm interested in, in um, to Charles Taylor's phrase, sources of, the, sources of the self. And Western European historians of thought are, are, are engaging with this literature. It's very rare that, um, that Soviet historians are, are engaging with this literature. Um, because we have different concepts of different different um, different terms of analysis, and to think kind of productively about how we can how we can come up with with, with common terms, I think is it would be useful for all of us. Um, what do I um, what do I what do I see jo Joanna's question about um, where do you see the boundary between ideology and culture? I mean, there's there's a, people who write on ideology, and ideology is not a term actually. That's not a concept that that I that I work with in any depth when preparing for the panel. I, 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 I began to think more reflectively on, ideo on ideology. What's the boundary between ideology and discourse? This was the, this was the question that, 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 that particularly came up. And there's a literature uh, on, on this, um, on how, um, uh, you know, for, for, for um, uh, uh, th that, you know, how, how can we use the concept of ideology in the way that I defined it so without it being too expansive and then kind of being, being um, unproductive. And, um, and here, I mean, I was, re I was reading Terry Eagleton, for, for instance, on the plane on the way here. And, and he engages with this and engages with, with post-structuralists who, who use, and I'll use discourse instead of culture, um, um, who use the term, who, 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 use di who don't like to use the term ideology. They like to use the term discourse because they, discourse is more all-encompassing and, and they see power as all-encompassing. People who would use the, um, and I'm distinguishing myself from, from these scholars again because, I, because I, I've only begun to think about this term in, in any remotely rigorous way. Um, but people who would use ideology would, would make, would, would, would um, create um, a boundary beyond which the political becomes, um, because, um, because what I'm talking about is political ideology, beyond, beyond which the political is not as present. Obviously, it's a very blurry. Um, boundary, but this is my sense from 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 um, from what I was reading. So, um, I think you two had some questions. There's one or two things that came up here which are fascinating. Pragmatism, yes, pragmatism, a lot of it, and that touches upon your question, which is that the Communist Party is not a monolithic structure. It is one that represents a variety of ideas, but within the boundaries. I see that one in Poland after '56. 
what you see is that there is a continuous debate taking place there. We might not see it on the outside, but we do see it on the inside. So there is always some form of, of discussion taking place within the communist structures as to what to prioritize. And to me, one of the most fascinating examples of that one is the communist attitude towards women and sexuality. On the one hand, we see in the 1950s what <coughs> appears to be a genuine a propaganda statement that women are equal in law, in employment, in education. This is a great time for women, bringing them out of what was seen as the bondage of you know, backwardness, Catholic church, paternalism, employment of women in industry with education and training. So it's not just unskilled labor, literally giving women that economic power, but that finishes in 56, because that's a time to seek reconciliation with the male workers, and the women are out. Um, and what is interesting is sexuality. I was always affected by coming back from Britain to, to, to Poland, and where the debate on sexuality was open here, and realizing that in Poland women used abortions, which were legal and state-provided, um, as a means of controlling fertility. And I remember saying to a young doctor, why? Why are you doing this? And he said to me, because this is a Catholic country. <laughs> so contraception was more of a sin than abortion. It had to be translated to me. And now that is pragmatism, if there, there is pragmatism. Now the other interesting example is the way in which the communists <coughs> dealt with youth organizations. It was on the one hand very much channeling, making sure there's no deviancy, there's no bad behavior, these good positive models. But within that, what I was surprised to find, there were those communists who actually wanted, or young scout thinkers, who wanted to take the youth outside that very narrow straitjacket. <coughs> and uh, Kurony and Michnik um, uh, 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 were two young scout leaders in the youth. And they were condemned for the fact that they wanted to see scout movements as genuinely youth organizations, as opposed to just a channel through which to process you. They always had that negative reputation that they were a little bit leftist. You know, mm -hmm. dissidents felt a bit uncomfortable about them. But it goes mm -hmm. back to the time when they represented a different interpretation within the context of approved policies of how youth issues should be handled. Um, I actually wanted to respond to that question on, on how does institutional history creep in into our cultural and social histories given how party <coughs> states were organized and the Communist Party functioned. And the reality is that late socialist Romania is not so, I, I don't find a lot of new or innovative ideas in terms of even socialist, the pedagogy of how to raise a socialist citizen. Yeah. In fact, what, where, where things get complicated and interesting, even though I think of myself as a cultural and social historian, is when you factor in all the institutional channels that bring ideology to the classrooms and to the teachers. And what you find in this process of implementation is a whole hierarchy of, of, of groups with very different agendas. Yeah? So you have uh, the ideological producers, you also have the inspectors who are supposed to, you have those who are supposed to train teachers to then train their students in a certain way. And at the end of this, uh, this uh, uh, hierarchy, you have teachers in the classroom that are supposed to instill 
this the socialist ideas and at the same time maintain discipline and, and actually kind of uh, be in a sense pragmatic about the whole thing and you realize that uh, through interviews and all this these things that it's actually education is quite a traditional conservative and resistant to change field and that in fact all these ideas of collective in, uh, belonging of discipline and was completely watered down yeah to to a sense of, of making a classroom work yeah that socialist ideas were adapted and were uh, you know put in practice but that all these different agendas of various groups uh, vary differently and that's what produced a different result in practice than what uh, it was intended at the level of when it was initially elaborated I just have another round of questions. I'm just going to ask, I'm afraid I have a huge list and I can't take any more, uh, but um, if, I, if anybody if can be really um, brief. So you see, and then Sandrine and Anne. Uh, well, maybe I can sum it up in one word, religion. <laughs> I don't know, just mentioned that religion somehow became less important. In fact, not true, not true in the least. Um, certainly, if you think of the global Cold War, and what was the motivating principle behind many of the Resistance struggles, etc., etc. We think about, I don't know, Sweden and Brzezinski going down to Pakistan and, and pointing towards Afghanistan, saying that, you know, do the Muhammad Mujahideen, you know, God gave you this land, etc., uh, etc. Et I'm just wondering if, if there's any comment you can make in terms of how did a socialist okay. ideology, which is at least to point to the Western myths, is the godless communism. How do you deal with this? Because obviously, <laughs> it's a con you know, educational system is conservative, you know, Catholic country in Poland, etc., etc. How did they? I mean, how we did it? Square, how did they square they the circle? <laughs> Sanjay? Yeah, I think that uh, to look at ideology in the West, we have to look at, to choose uh, different places to look at. The point is that ideology is not conveyed the same way in the, in the West. And why don't we uh, look at advertisement as an ideology? I mean, it's absolutely everywhere around us, and it is ideology. It's the ideology of capitalism, and it's very powerful. So in fact, if we look at that as an ideology, then I mean, then we have something. And the West is really very powerful in selling its own ideologies through a lot of pictures and a lot of things. So that's the first stage. The second stage would be, for example, like uh, the international organization and the people are talking to each other. It's highly ideological and the West produces a very powerful ideology around freedom, uh, all these freedoms, uh, the speech about freedom and so on and so forth. And the answers of the East is equality. So you have you know, these words of which are highly ideological at that time. So it's not absolutely not true from my point of view that the West doesn't produce ideology. It produces a very powerful ideology, but we don't look at the right place to study these ideologies. That's important. Okay. Mm. Very quickly. Um, when Jessica first wrote to me, she asked, she put me in the ideology panel. <laughs> 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 oh, you're the Then she moved me to globalization. <laughs> <laughs> as a historian, I was fascinated by your comments um, about the, uh, the, the, the divide between what's going on in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And I was just reminded in passing that, of course, one of the things that tripped Gorbachev up is that he didn't really know what was going on. 
in Eastern Europe, except what his advisors told him, and they told him what he thought he wanted to hear. So all those ideas of a mm. common home. But I have a, a technical question, because I seem to be thinking about technical things. For Polly, um, you talked about biography. Mm. Were you saying that you think biography is a good way of writing cultural history, or were you saying that your sort post-Stalinist chaps, presumably they're mainly chaps, um, <laughs> thought, thought of biography as a good form of propaganda? Because I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I mean, quickly, I'm, I'm a lecturer in the law school, and my work really cuts in what, what you guys are talking, especially the comment on the human rights. This is my, I, my, what I study. And uh, the history of human rights shows, actually, in a way, or certain history of human rights studies shows that 1970s that you mentioned, and also you mentioned Pauline quickly, 1970s the crucial time when the Americans came up with the idea, because of dissidents, Soviet dissidents, which goes to the West, the, the idea of uh, human rights, in a way. First time human rights as a term had been used in the 1970s, and Amnesty International takes first time the Nobel Prize, and, and then Nixon, and goes to history. So the Americans invent in 1970s something which is the idea of human rights. So this was kind of what you were uh, mentioning. Just one last point about this. Uh, I think this human rights is uh, how it's raised in the 1970s shows a connection between ideology and the economic sphere. And I think they are very much connected. And we have to turn back to this connection again and again, which is yeah. 1970s, which is just after 1980s, it is neoliberalism wars. And we know that the, the raise of neoliberalism as a form of capitalism or late capitalism <laughs> is very much goes parallel with the birth of human rights as a discourse. Um, uh, Julia? Uh and then Jessica. Um, very briefly, I just wanted to return the discussion actually to chronologies, um, which was the subject of the first panel. Um, a concept which came up a couple of times was this idea of stagnation and cynicism, that it's a kind of zero-sum game, that ideology just disappears or becomes nothing at, at, at some point. And, um, in, in, in my work, I work quite a lot on the afterlives of ideas, how they travel, how they get mistranslated. Um, uh, and I also do quite a lot of work on relic Maoism, what you might call so sort of resurgence <laughs> to, to neo-Maoism in, 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 in China today. So I'd like to ask the question, you know, what happens to ideological beliefs or sort of idealism, or, or, or however you define it, sort of after that framework is gone? So we talk that the kind of common uh, type of analysis for contemporary Chinese culture is post-socialist. But if you look at the sort of very vocal... Um, sort of energetic neo-Maoist groups in China today you sort of, you sort of think, okay, what, what, what's happened to this ideology? And I started off as a literary historian as well, so the last few months I've been doing some work on um, a really interesting and bizarre writer called Zhang Chongzhi who was the inventor of the term Red Guards in the context of the Cultural Revolution so died in the war Maoist. Uh, he then became a leader of the um, sort of literary avant-garde Thor in the 1980s. Uh, he's a Muslim by origin, so he converted to a particularly sort of puritanical um, Islam in the 1980s, and he's now one of the he's both an unapologetic Maoist with all the sort of atheism that one would think that comes with it, 
Um, and at the same time, he's uh, China's leading spokesperson for pan-Islam. He speaks out for um, uh, sort of against the uh, sort of American war on terror, called American imperialism. Uh, speaks out in favour of um, uh, Palestinian radicalism and Muslim sort of violence and, and terrorism, which in the context of contemporary China with its Xinjiang issue is an extremely audacious and rebellious thing to do. And he really, I think, causes us to mix up our ideas of dissidence. We think of dissidence, I think, as something you know, it has to be within the liberal democratic framework. And yet he is absolutely a non-individual, well, he's both individualistic, but absolutely <coughs> non-liberal dissident. And you know, he can't publish in Chinese. He has to write his most sensitive works in, in Japanese, in fact. So although he is, he is a Maoist, he's one of China's most vocal Maoists, and he has, you know, he engaged with Maoism, he was a red guard, he walked the walk, and he, and he talked the talk. He can't publish his most sensitive things in China today, and, you know, that's, so I'm just wondering what, what happens to ideology when that <laughs> framework goes. Very, very quick point. I, Anna's observation at the start is, is really shared by, by our research group, that we're frustrated with the way in which sort of Soviet history and East European history are so separated, because... Uh, and it, 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 picking up on Anne's comment, it's, the question is, is that studying the, the historical <coughs> reality, the, the world of our actors, or is that a historiographical construction? I would tend to think more towards the latter than the former. But that was a very quick question to, to um, Polly and Anna Solly then. To what extent do you think you can engage directly with um, the, the kinds of histories that are, uh, and accounts that are being put forward by Anita and by Diana here? Mm -hmm. To what extent can you relate with that? Thank you. And maybe the last question from you is Peter. Thank you very much. Uh, Mm. Uh, this is an excellent discussion, but I feel a little bit uh, uneasy about some of the directions we are uh, taking. The organizers set uh, explicit uh, goals, and these were uh, Not so good. basically uh, comparative ones, comparing uh, the East and the West, elaborating on the differences and uh, similarities. And if we really want to answer related questions then, and make productive comparisons, then we may not apply extremely uh, broad concepts. For example, if we label capitalism everything that uh, uh, include, uh, so to speak, wage uh, 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 labor uh, and uh, uh, we do not uh, consider property rights, etc., etc. So, if we uh, use very broad concept in that sense, or if we label ideology or including to ideology everything that is said or written, uh, or if we uh, if we consider Cold War everything. Uh, uh, bad, bad, uh, international conflicts uh, exist and we do not specify historically that that was a historical period, uh, then I think uh, these broad concepts were would over-determine the results. We will find hardly any differences between the communist uh, systems and, and the capitalist systems or less differences uh, than uh, we could uh, plausibly uh, assume.
Thank you. Thank you very much. And so the final word from our panelists would be um, okay, I'm, I'm going to take three of the points. So Sandrine's point about um, looking in the wrong places for ideology in the West, I think you could, I mean, I, I'm sure that's true, but I think you can also look in exactly the same places. So um, Cold War yeah. cinema in the West, popular fiction in the West is absolutely, I mean, it's, you know, there's plenty of people who've worked on them precisely as kind of ideological constructs and ways of communicating ideology to the population. So I don't think, I mean, one can look in the same places. Also, obviously, the Soviet Union had advertising, which it also used both as to sort of sell the lifestyle of consumption, but also as, as, as another form of ideological communication. Um, to, to Anne's point, um, yes, uh, it was the latter. Um, so that's, that the biography is, is, is almost unanimously actually across um, publishers seen as the sort of best, most effective form of propaganda, especially for youth. And of course, it's, it's very interesting paradox in this system that it should be seen as a very effective form of ideological communication. It's not new to the post-Stalin era because there's a great sort of golden age of biography in, the, in, in high Stalinism. But biographies, well, biographies of exemplary people of, of various kinds, but this sort of category of exemplary people grows wider and wider in late socialism. So, you know, in, in my case, it goes from sort of Spartacus to Kaganovich. <laughs> but, you know, but, it, but, but there's also very popular biographical series which are about some cultural figures in the West, for example, but which are still seen as part of the kind of broader cultural um, project. Um, and, and just finally about engaging with East European um, historiography, I, I, I don't, I, I think, um, I think we, we do actually. <laughs> um, I mean, I've just finished writing a comparative piece actually on sort of literary institutions um, in, uh, well, between um, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Soviet Union, and in particular looking at the interactions between Samizdat, Tamizdat, um, sort of official literature and grey zone literature. And I'm especially interested in the way in which that idea of sort of grey zone or in-between literature is replicated, albeit in different ways, obviously in culturally specific ways. Um, and I find I find the East European um, historiography on late socialism really very valuable indeed. And I think, in fact, the, the danger almost I find is that one almost ends up sort of seeing the same things happening um, <laughs> in, in different places and actually sort of teasing out the specificity in, in, in some ways is more of a problem, precisely because the institutional framework is so similar in so many of these places. You see the same kinds of dynamics, but if you look very closely, obviously they're, they're different as well. Um, I think that you know, I'm really struck at the discussion about ideology and not ideology and the boundary the boundary between what is ideology and what isn't, how is it manifest in the East and the West. Uh, Lucas's examples about, uh, oh, don't like get the ideology out of it, or I need to see how I think it's very important for us to historicize the, the binary in itself. Kind of how the notion of what is ideological and what is not ideological, how one side is ideological and the other, what does it mean to be ideological, not ideological, how this binary was produced in the West and in the East, again, for lack of a better word. Um, personally, I'm very also uneasy with the East-West um, East -West distinction. And, <clears throat> and in general, I'm increasingly wondering, uh, is it possible to talk about this period and ideology or kind of these more broad and salient issues without, rep without using binaries at all? Like, how can we discuss the Cold War? without falling into the trap, into some kind of two, like this really binary trap. Um, and I don't have a solution, I just like, it's, it's something that I'm very interested to think about. Um, I appreciate Elidor's comment on the systems and I think that, again, as someone who does comparative history, in both systems, 
uh, and studying the press, which is kind of all the newspapers, which are kind of institutions that are engaged in productions of ideology, whether or not they admit that this is what they're doing. Um, what's very interesting to me is really the range of actors that take part in every system um, and how these very different actors and very different ideas within each system are competing for setting the boundaries of the institution, for setting the boundaries of the permissible, the acceptable for defining ideology. And very interesting, again, how on both sides, both in the United States and the Soviet Union, um, how much of this, uh, of kind of this project uh, aspired to anticipate the audiences mm -hmm. of the ideological production. Uh, what would the reactions of the readers be? Uh, what would the reactions of critics and censors be? And uh, so, again, something that is very, very malleable and has multiple participants, something that's uh, worth to consider when we think about ideology. Uh, yeah, the, uh, what happens, first I think it was Julia who asked the question, what happens to the ideas when the framework is gone, right? That was the, and, 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 and here it's, um, I just wanted to, to, to share an, an anecdote. So I work at the European University, which is a post-Soviet phenomenon and a pretty progressive um, institution. And it's very interesting how many Soviet institutions we have within our, within our university. And it's also very interesting. It's also it's also it's also very interesting. Um, so Alek Hordin, who I've already mentioned, his book, um, the collective and the individual in Russia, his book, his book as well as, and I won't talk about it, um, uh, Catherine Verdery's "What Was Socialism and What Comes Next," really have helped me understand what's happening in my university. His his book has helped me in the sense that there's is that we we on a practice level on the, on the level of institutions. Are very much, it seems to me, are are still attached to this to this practice that one cannot know oneself without the collective. So everything that we do, we do many things collectively. If we have a if we have a, and which is which is which is good, of course, in some some sense, and it's bad in, in other senses. But um, we we if we're discussing a student's work, we're always doing it collectively. And I was and and, and I found this, and I found this, you know. It can be time-consuming, obviously, and, uh, and 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 I'm I'm very conscious right now that this is being recorded, so I'm trying to. Uh, so, so uh, um, um, and I began to I, I was trying to figure out why are we doing this, and I signed Karpordian's book, and as I was reading it, I was like, oh my God, this is a subjective subjectivizing practice that was from the Soviet period and has continued. It's obviously more complex than that, but these ideas they continue and. Um, and often it's not, people aren't completely aware what their origins are, and, and maybe I might not be aware, maybe they predate 1917. Um, so so um, uh, that, that's one thing. The, um, the comment about are our terms too broad, and um, how do we use capitalism, how do we use um, ideology, well, then this connects to the, the question about religion. I do think that, that as, and, and, and here I might, I, I might be overstating it, but then I'll explain in a second why I'm overstating it. I think as historians that we are not, we, are, we, we often don't pay enough, as much attention as we should to debates about these concepts outside of our fields. Now let me, let me give you an example. There is a massive Soviet, uh, not massive, but there is an important Soviet subjectivity literature. In that Soviet subjectivity literature, and I'm right, I've been writing a long historiographical essay on this, in that Soviet subjectivity literature, if somebody were to, from outside of our field, from, from who, who worked on subjectivity in a kind of post-structuralist sense, 
were to read what's happening in our field, they would be very confused, very confused. Because in our field, if you read, and what I tried to do in this, in this historiographical essay is create a genealogy of the concept. We have at least four extant concepts of subjectivity that are used interchangeably in the literature. And, and actually the, canonic, the canonizing um, moment, which was an incredibly important intervention by Eric Neyman, um, in that canonizing kind of 2002 Russian review piece on Soviet subjectivity, Soviet subjectivity is defined in a, sense, in a way that is different from the three practicers of it, three of the practice of it to that point, or four of them actually, Alek Harakoizen, um, uh, Igal Halfen, Jochen Halbeck, and, um, and um, uh, Stephen Kotkin. Uh, Anna Krilova is another issue. But anyway, so, but there's, 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 um, there's, there's, a lot of, there's, there's a lot of different things going on, and in order to have really productive conversations of when we're using concepts, I think it's very important to be clear what we mean by that. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, maybe uh, the final, final words from Anita and yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Anita. <laughs> um, you see, there's not just a political revolution taking place in Eastern Europe, at least during the communist period, but also a nationalist one. And I think that is something that there are two revolutions at least, and they are very manifestly so when communism weakens. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't there before. So ideology is always tainted by that one. What happens to dead ideas or ideologies? Well, they become one, a stick with which to beat the opposition. You betrayed us. You did implemented the Soviet program. Or you incorporated into your program, present Polish government, by saying you betrayed the old age pensioners who had all these incredibly good allowances during the communist period, and you took them away. Look what Balsarovich did. So I, I think there is a certain degree of promiscuity. You can always use you know, a dead cat. So a dead ideology is very useful. <laughs> Thank you very much for this wonderful discussion.